The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Hey there, how you doing? Happy Friday, TGIF. I just flew from Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles, and I am tired. But I'm excited because we've got two great guests in the show today. Uh, First up, we have Jonah Minkoff-Zern. Jonah is co-director of Public Citizens Democracy is for People campaign. And that's where he works to build a national movement for our democracy by building grassroots support nationwide to get money out of politics and ensure all voters have access to the ballot. He has mobilized people to push for a constitutional amendment to overturn the U.S. Supreme Court Citizens United decision, helped win voting rights and other election reforms in New York State, and coordinated national support for the Second Chances Florida ballot initiative. That restored the eligibility to vote to Floridians with felony convictions. Jonah's been on the show multiple times over the past decade. Always an informative guest. Good to have him back on the show. Jonah, good afternoon. Happy Friday. Thanks so much for having me, Leslie. Great to talk to you again. There is uh, something called Nobody is Above the Law that I want you to tell us about. And this House impeachment testimony has pushed a lot of new signups for that. And this is not just in one area. This is in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. Um, There are actions. There are rallies in support of impeachment, rallies in support of removal. um, And uh, you're looking at, what, more than 400 communities nationwide that are signed up for this? Tell us more. Well, people are outraged, Leslie. I mean, we, you know, just heard it and, and everyone's talking about the, the outrageous actions of the president, that you know, nobody is above the law, and that our president used military aid to pressure a foreign government that really needed that aid um, to protect itself from an from, from a autocrat uh, that, that's trying to invade its country uh, to try to get them to interfere in our elections. Um, and, and I think there's really when the founders created the articles of impeachment, there, there was nothing more compelling of, than, of abuse of power than, than a situation like this one. So what we're doing is we're taking to the streets. Um, the website's impeach.org. Nobody is above the law events um, that are taking place nationwide the evening before the House impeachment vote. So what's looking like, our, our events look like they'll take place this coming Tuesday, but that's not firm yet. Uh, if the impeachment votes on Wednesday, then we'll, we'll rally on Tuesday evening. Right now we have 261 events in all 50 states in Washington, D.C. We reached a great milestone yesterday of more than 100,000 people signed up, and that number is really quickly climbing. Um, so we're gonna, we, we hope to have hundreds of thousands of people on the streets next week to take action and to say this is not just happening in D.C., but the court is the American people, and we are outraged. We're not going to let our democracy fall. We're not going to let this uh, president who believes he's above the law and can do anything he wants to persist. This is all very well and good. Let me play devil's advocate for a minute. What about people out there who say, we've seen this before. We've seen outrage before. But unless people vote, our outrage goes nowhere. A couple of examples. The day after Donald Trump became president, hundreds of thousands of people marched in the streets. And I saw person after person when asked, who did you vote for? Oh, I didn't vote. And then now, I think this is awesome and we're immobilizing people. It's incredible. But what does that do when we have a Republican-led Senate? And Mitch McConnell, just in the last 24 hours, basically has said, 
you know, I'm working with the White House counsel on this. I mean, this is unheard of because this is supposed to be a real trial in the Senate. And I kind of feel as a taxpayer, a citizen, a voter, powerless in a sense over this this process. Is that where this stems from, the anger and the powerless feeling that voices need to be heard? Well, we have the power to change that. I mean, I, I, you know, we, we all remember, or I, I don't remember, but history remembers that, uh, and many people do remember, that Nixon wasn't going to be impeached and removed until he was. You know, that the, the level of polling, the level of support for his removal, especially amongst Republicans at that point, um, was, was, fairly, was fairly low until that shifted. And I think we have the power to be part of that shift. You know, we, we have really... Trump is a tremendous threat to our democracy. He's a tremendous threat to the, the rule of law in our nation and, and to the ability for, for us to be a democracy uh, as our founders intended. Um, and I think it's the actions like the Women's March, like the mobilizations that we've had around Trump is not above the law, that's really kept him at bay to the extent that we've been able to. And, and we talk about elections. Well, we had a record number of women and people of color elected to Congress uh, last year after people mobilized and after people took action and Democrats took, took control of the House. And we're, you know, we're not a partisan organization, but clearly people's voices were rising up against uh, Republican actions and, and uh, rising up against Trump in that way. And, and I think that this mobilization is key for us to say and show that we're, that we're standing up for our democracy, that we're standing against a president who believes that he's king, who believes that he can do anything, that he can use our resources as, as a nation to try to pressure a foreign government to interfere in our election. And, you know, what was really profound to me, I've been watching the hearings, was looking at these career diplomats and how emotional they got when they were asked, what was the impact of this? What was the impact of Trump pressuring Ukraine and threatening to withdraw our, our military su- support that's essential for the survival of their democracy? Um, how did that impact them, and how did that impact the world? And they really were, ju- were just emotional, almost breaking down, talking about how how, you know, with our faults as a nation, that we're seen in many places as key uh, in fighting for democracy and fighting to, to maintain a, a struggling democracy like the Ukraine. And when our leader does something like what Trump did, it, it just undermines, it undermines that tremendously, not just in Ukraine, but in, the, in our world standing. Um, and, and that needs to be stopped. And I think us taking the streets is part of that. Um, and no matter what happens in the Senate, we have to keep persisting. We have to keep fighting, whether that's people engaging in the election cycle next year um, or just just fighting on a day-to-day basis to make sure that Congress is taking action to, to hold Trump accountable and to push forward a, a, an agenda that protects our democracy. Uh, absolutely. Uh, this is a tentative, tentatively scheduled, I understand. Uh, the full House impeachment vote is tentatively scheduled for next Wednesday, December 18th. So these demonstrations are tentatively scheduled nationwide for next Tuesday evening, December 17th. Uh, and this is planned in all 50 states plus the District of Columbia tentatively for the 17th. Am I correct? That's right. That's right. And tentatively is the key word. As soon as we know when the House impeachment vote will be, these will take place the evening before. And, and we're seeing, you know, these are somber. They're not celebratory. Obviously, won't, won't have, the vote won't have happened. Um, they're not angry at, at Trump broadly, though obviously many of us are. But they're, they're somber because we're, we're not happy that our president's being impeached. Um, but we are saying to Congress, 
this is your duty to do this. Um, this is your duty, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, to follow the Constitution. And that's how our nation survives, and that's how our democracy survives, is that people stand up for our Constitution and they do what's right in this situation. And that's our message. It's, it's clearly that the, this government has abused, this president has abused his power um, and needs to be held accountable. And that's our clear message. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with our guest and with you. Uh, Don't go away. More to come with co-director of Public Citizens Democracy is for People campaign, Jonah Minkoff-Zurin. Also, be sure to check out the website, Nobody is Above the Law, Action Signups. Go to impeach. uh, That's uh, Nobody is Above the Law, Action Signups, impeach.org. Also, Public Citizen, uh, Public Citizen. Org. I'm going to get a little more on, on that. The websites aren't clear to me on my uh, my sheet here. On Twitter, Public Citizen, follow them there, at public underscore citizen. Jonah can be followed at JonahMZ. And when tweeting about these events, use the hashtag Impeachment Eve. Back with you, back with him right after this. with Jonah Minkoff-Zurn, co-director of Public Citizens Democracy is for People campaign. And uh, we are talking about more than 450 nobody is above the law mobilizations. They're planned across the country the night before the U.S. House of Representatives votes to impeach Donald Trump. There are more than 80,000 grassroots activists signed up via impeach.org to rally in support of impeachment. Um, uh, Over the past three weeks, as you know, folks, members of the U.S. House Intelligence and Judiciary Committees have built a case against President Trump from the testimony and public comments of national security officials and diplomats who observed the president attempting to extract personal political concessions from Ukraine in exchange for approved taxpayer military aid and an Oval Office meeting. And on the eve of the House vote, protesters will gather in front of their district offices of House members as lawmakers finalize their positions. They also will gather at U.S. Senate offices and other locations as senators prepare for a likely trial. Activists will call on lawmakers to uphold the U.S. Constitution and their oaths of office by supporting Trump's impeachment and removal. Jonah, I do believe that when you see thousands of people outside and you're one of the 31 Democrats in red districts, 22 of which are freshmen, this can have an impact because it would be wonderful if we could see a unanimous 100 percent unity of the Democrats. We already know that we have one defection, uh, the uh, freshman uh, from New Jersey uh, in a red district there that Trump won by more than uh, 10 percentage points in the 2016 election. But let's go to the Senate or Republicans in the House and the Senate. Will our voices fall on deaf ears when it comes to the Republicans when you have Leader McConnell and others talking clearly as if they've already made up their minds? I mean, I don't think that's predetermined. I think that's that's why we're acting. I, I, you know, as I mentioned, we, you know, Nixon wasn't impeached and and didn't resign until he did. You know, I think um, I, I think there's there can be a turning point where where people wake up, where things change, and it's up to us to push for that. But it's regardless of how things turn up, it's up to us to build a movement, and I think that movement matters beyond the vote in the Senate. It matters, or the trial in the Senate. I think it, it matters in how the politics of this nation uh, react, and whether 
Trump is allowed to continue to undermine the the foundations of our democracy, whether Trump is allowed to persist as a president uh, beyond next year. All of those things matter as far as how are we taking action and how do we see this moment as our moment. I think it's really important. We just heard about Ella Baker and talking about Ella Baker um, as a, you know, today being her birthday, that people like Ella Baker have taught us that history is not uh, to be watched. History is to be made. And we're making history right now, whether it's the downfall of our democracy or whether we're building something much stronger and better, uh, like these amazing women who were elected into office last year showed us as possible. Um, that's up to us. And I think we really have the power to, to determine our destiny right now. Um, the evidence, I feel, and I'm sure you would agree with me, Jonah, is overwhelming that Trump pressured Ukraine in 2020 elections, using U.S. military aid in a White House meeting to extort Ukrainian officials into manufacturing fake dirt on Trump's political opponent and then engaging in a criminal cover-up. Uh, there have been, in the past 24 hours, reports in the Washington Post that the uh, the, the Congressional Budget Office and, and others in D.C. say that's not why the aid was held up. But even if the aid wasn't held up, as we heard one of the constitutional scholars testify before the House, uh, actually before the Judiciary Committee, not the House, um, you know, he, he said that the abuse of power was when the favor was asked for, regardless of the aid, right? When you say, hey, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to investigate and announce there's going to be an investigation of Joe Biden, former vice president and private citizen, who most likely uh, at the time he felt and still probably it's looking like will be uh, his political opponent. And this would result in personal and political gain, even without holding the funds. That alone is an abuse of power. And that alone is grounds for impeachment. Is it? Is it as difficult for you as it is for me, Jonah, to wrap your head around people that can't see that clearly, that two plus two is four? Yeah, I mean, I think I think history will look poorly on Republicans who are defending him right now. And Republicans, I live in uh, Syracuse, New York, so I'm in a Republican district, and, and Republicans like ours in a swing district who who refuse to stand up and do the right thing right now. Um, you know, it, it's... It's not a question that this president has abused his power, and I, I think it's not a que- it, it's not a question that this was an illegal act too. That he's asking for something of value—that's a violation of uh, federal election commission laws. So, but it doesn't have to be a criminal act to impeach. In fact, the impeachment was drawn up before the impeachment articles were drawn up before there was uh, a, a federal criminal code. So the founders were talking about abuse of power, precisely this situation, when they established the idea of impeachment and removal of a president who was abusing his power or her power. And this is so this is not about a Republican or a Democrat president. It's about the fact that this president here has done this. And it's the responsibility of Republicans and Democrats to say this is an act that can't be allowed to stand. Um, and if it does, then, then where are we as a nation? If a president is allowed to abuse his power to this extent, and, you know, we think about Nixon. Nixon burglarized an office. Um, he undermined our elections in burglarizing an office. This is the president undermining our elections by pressuring a foreign government that is struggling, that needs our military aid in order to fend off an autocrat. Um, and doing that to interfere in our elections, it, it's, it's extraordinary, and it's far worse than what Nixon did. Um, and it's, it's 
history will look poorly on anyone who is defending Trump in this moment. Um, and whether or not they win a fight in a week from now or a month from now or a year from now, um, history will not look kindly on them. And I think it's up to us to make sure that there's immediate actions, that there's immediate repercussions, uh, whether they're in the ballot box or and on the streets uh, in nonviolent protests to say that this is not acceptable. And that's, you know, that's why we're mobilizing at impeach.org for nobody is above the law protests. Uh, what will probably be more than 500 rallies and, and now more than, uh, because it's climbing so quickly, more than 110,000 people are now signed up to take the streets. Okay, let's talk about that because we have uh, less than a minute left. Activists want to get involved. How do they do that? Where can they go to RSVP for the impeachment eve? Hashtag impeachment eve. Nobody is above the law events. Um, go to impeach.org and you can find a rally near you. Also, click on materials and you can write a letter to the editor. It's really important that we're speaking out. You know, people are, when people understand the truth here, they will, they do the right thing. Thank you, Jonah. Marky Mark Grimaldi, our executive producer, will be attending one of the events in Western New York in Buffalo. On Twitter, follow Jonah at JonahMZ. Follow Public Citizen at public underscore citizen. And like I said, nobody is above the law. The website for the action signups, go to impeach.org. And the website for Public Citizen is citizen.org. up and we saved the best for last as they say right in this hour i'm leslie marshall good afternoon welcome or welcome back former congressman current democratic presidential candidate john delaney joins us congressman delaney won u.s house district six in maryland back in 2012 re-elected in 2014 and 2016 but rather than seek re-election to his house seat in 2018 and july of 2017 John became the first candidate to announce that he would run for president against Donald J. Trump in 2020. Prior to his congressional career, he founded two New York Stock Exchange companies, as well as Blueprint Maryland, a nonprofit organization focused on the creation of jobs in Maryland's private sector. He's the son of a union electrician, and he and his wife, April, have four daughters. More than a pleasure to have former congressman and, for, and current Democratic presidential candidate John Delaney with us. Uh, Mr. Delaney, thank you for joining us. Uh, do you prefer to be called congressman, former congressman, future president? What do you like, sir? <laughs> you can call me John. Why don't we do that? That's easy. I like that. One syllable. Yes, exactly. <laughs> John, I'm going to tell you a complete... Um, off the record stuff on the record. How's this? I am. Um, hey, that's good. I am one of the few liberals on Fox News Channel uh, under contract with Fox, and I co-host a show a handful of times a month called Outnumbered. And they have a guy on the couch called One Lucky Guy. And there was a Republican one time on the couch that told me he was a friend of yours, and I was very surprised because you know people forget that Democrats and Republicans can be friends even if they don't agree politically whatsoever, and that would be Daryl Issa. And Daryl Issa oh, yeah. actually asked asked me to have you on my show. Uh, yeah, Daryl and I, uh, you know, we had similar backgrounds. We were each entrepreneurs before we ran for Congress, and uh, we worked on a, a whole bunch of things uh, together uh, in the House. And, uh, you know, Daryl's a friend of mine, and uh, we had a good working relationship. 
Uh, John, uh, before we get into some of the specifics, what made you wake up in the morning one day and just say, I'm going to run for president. I'm going to run for president against this president, Donald Trump, to make him a one-term president. What, what, what was the passion or the burning inside of you, that desire uh, that, that brought that to fruition? Well, I think it, um, it really started when Hillary Clinton lost. Because I, like a lot of Americans, uh, I think thought that we were going to win. And uh, I just think after she lost, having seen what played out in the 2016 election and the level of raw divisiveness in our country, I just felt like we all had to think about things differently and that we all had to do everything we could to, to deal with the central issue facing this country, which is how divided we are. And I thought based on my style of leadership and my record in Congress and what I was able to accomplish in the private sector, where I've always been a unifier and a builder, that that is exactly what the country uh, needed. And that's, but prior to that, I had never really given it serious consideration. When we look at all the issues that are facing our nation, and issues that Democratic voters especially are passionate about, what would you say is your number one concern? And you have more than one, but you know what, what, what tops that list? What are you most passionate about? Well, obviously the issue I, I think I just touched on in many ways is the number one issue, which is how divided we are. And it has prevented us from having a functional federal government and when you don't have a functional federal government, um, you're not really preparing the next generation uh, or preparing the country so the next generation has the same kind of opportunities that prior generations have had. So in many ways, all roads lead to this notion of division. So I think that is really a central challenge that we face. I also think there's tremendous concentration of economic opportunity right now in this country. And we talk a lot about wealth and income inequality, which is very significant and growing, but there's also this growing opportunity gap. And what I mean by that, if you look where all the jobs have been created in this country across the last decade or two, it's really been in a handful of places. And we're seeing an enormous hollowing out of huge parts of our country. And that's a very big challenge for our nation because it's not only bad for those communities, but with the way our democracy is structured with the, the, the structure of the Senate and the structure of the Electoral College, unless we really get broad-based geographic economic prosperity, we're going to in many ways have an unstable democracy. So I think that's a huge issue. Um, and then I think there's a couple of really big issues regarding the future. You know, I tend to be one of those people who's an optimist. I think the world actually gets better every single year. But there are some um, dark clouds on the horizon. And there are things that we're either not doing that we should be doing, or we're in many ways retreating from our responsibilities. Um, and what I mean by that is we're not addressing climate change. We're not addressing the, um, the skills gap that's being created based on how work is changing with technology and innovation and automation. And in many ways, there's this kind of isolationism and nationalism trends, not only here in this country, but around the world, which I think is very dangerous for um, all of our futures. So those are some of the issues that I really care about. So know that you care about health care. Voters care about health care, not just Democrats across the board, Republicans as well, undecided, independents, people that are not happy with the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. 
And I know that I've heard you say before, John, that you believe health care is a fundamental right, as I think all the Democratic candidates for president for 2020 are. You propose a universal health care plan called Better Care that will provide high quality care to everyone, replace our system, which is outdated of employer sponsored insurance. How does this differ from Medicare for all or from Medicare for all who want it and some of the other plans that Democrats are proposing on that platform alongside you? it's similar to Medicare for All in that it's universal health care. And what I mean by that is it is a plan to give everyone health care, as you said, uh, Leslie, is a basic human right. And Medicare for All does that, and my better care plan does that. Where it differs from Medicare for All is that it's not a single-payer system, meaning the government is not the only payer which is actually a very rare approach to universal health care. Only a few countries have that approach. Most countries that have a universal health care system have a form of mixed model where everyone gets guaranteed government insurance, but they can also opt out and buy their own private insurance or get private insurance from their employer. You know, Germany has that model. Japan, actually the prime minister of Japan, wrote a very good op-ed in the Washington Post today, about Japan's universal health care system. And so in many ways, my better care system is much more like what Germany and what Japan and France have, which is guaranteed gov- government coverage for everyone. Because I do think health care is a basic human right. And we have a tragedy of uninsured Americans in this country that are not covered by health care, and, and we've got to end that. But I don't believe in this strident, you know, one-size-fits-all government approach, which is what Medicare for All is. Now, other folks are running on public options, which is what this Medicare for all who want it really is. And what a public option really means, if you want to simplify it, it's the U.S. government setting up a health insurance company and offering health care through the government-owned insurance company, which means you have to pay premiums to get it. You'll have all kinds of co-pays and deductibles, just like any insurance company would have. There's nothing wrong with it. And for certain people, it might be a better option. But in general, it's not going to really improve our health care system. It'll just be one more insurance company in the market. Uh, and in this case, it'll be run by the government. So I don't think those proposals really go far enough. And they're very incremental. And they're not really bold enough for the challenges we have in health care. So in many ways, I think better care is the, the best plan that's been proposed. Uh, and it's not true because it's my plan, but it, it, it actually is modeled after the successful universal health care systems around the world. It gets at this tragedy of all these uninsured Americans, but it gives the American people's choices, which is what they fundamentally want. And, and that actually leads to a healthier health care system. So, so that's probably a, how I would describe it. I think you described it quite well. John, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back to you uh, right after this. I'm Leslie Marshall. Don't go away, folks. More with former congressman and current Democratic presidential candidate John Delaney. Uh, John's website is johndelaney.com. That's J-O-H-N-D-E-L-A-N-E-Y. And on Twitter, follow him there, at John Delaney. Back with him, back with you, right after this. We're back with former congressman John Delaney and current uh, Democratic presidential candidate. 
John Delaney. John, thank you for holding. Welcome back. In the past 24 hours, the United States and China have agreed to a limited deal to halt a trade war. I know you have some things to say, not only that, but specifically on trade. I have heard you say before that you believe that rules-based trade is a critical component of United States foreign policy. So is this a good first step? Does Trump get kudos for this, or is he not addressing currency manipulation uh, human rights abuses and other issues uh, that both Democrats and Republicans have issue with when it comes to trade and specifically trade with China. Well, look, this is an example of, of Trump kind of ending a problem that he started in some ways, right? Because he got us into this trade war with China, which has really devastated huge parts of our country, particularly farmers. I mean, farm bankruptcies are up 23% in the past year. And as someone who's traveled to all 99 counties in Iowa, I can tell you that you know, the small farmers and, and big farmers are hurting. So I'm happy that there's some relief to that situation. But, the, you know, the problem with the president's approach to China is not that he was wrong about, you know, the issue we have with China. In many ways, I give him credit for being the loudest voice a few years ago talking about the problems we have with China. But I don't think he he is diagnosing the problem right, and therefore the way he's going about it is all wrong. He thinks the whole issue is the is the trade deficit, which is a problem, but it's not really the main problem that we have. In many ways, the main problem we have is their theft of intellectual property, which is what you've mentioned. And as I like to say, China's in many ways acted like pirates. They've basically been stealing things. They've been stealing intellectual property. They've been stealing islands in the South China Sea. Um, and you can't really stop that behavior with a bilateral trade agreement, meaning just us and them. You really need a bigger coalition with all of our allies because they'll always be able to do it through some kind of a backdoor approach. In other words, if we share intellectual property with our allies, China can steal it from them instead of directly from us. So the president is going about this thing, in my opinion, the the wrong way. He's getting involved in an old-fashioned trade war to try to change the trade deficit, where in reality he should be working with our allies and U.S. businesses and presenting a unified front to China to fundamentally get them to change their practices, mostly around intellectual property. Interesting. Um, Yeah, there's yesterday I heard that was going to come down and, you know, I I, actually I thought he was going to cut a trade deal on the day uh, that the articles of impeachment are voted on uh, next week. That's what I thought would happen personally. Um, well, you got speaking... to be suspicious about this timing. You know, the Chinese yeah. are incredibly good at this stuff. You know, unlike the United States, where every time we have a new president, we've got a whole new team in the trade office um, leading the negotiations. It's very different in China. I mean, they've got seasoned, lifetime veterans who play the long game on these negotiations. And I am sure China sensed weakness this past week. And, you know, you have to worry that, um, you know, did they pounce at a time the president was vulnerable because he was desperate to have a distraction from the fact that uh, he's about to get impeached. So that's why it's, I, it's important for us all to look at it. But but you started by saying, am I happy that, that we have some resolution? Yeah, I'm happy for American farmers because I've seen firsthand what this has done to them. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, speaking of the farmers, do you think the farmers are like, OK, we love Donald Trump voting for him, you know, again, or we'll vote for him if they didn't last time? Or do you think they're suspicious because they've kind of heard this song and dance before they've been burned before? 
Well, I think they were running out of patience. No, I really do, because I think between what he did uh, with China and the incredible effect that had on farmers, and then all of these ethanol waivers that he's been giving, which really go right to the heart of the American agriculture industry, right? Because he's effectively allowed big oil companies to not have biofuels and ethanol mixed into their product by giving them waivers. And that has significantly hurt demand for corn, soybeans, everything, you know, and they've already been hit by the China stuff. So in many ways, American farmers have been fighting a two-front war, and both wars were started by the president, and a lot of them haven't been faring very well in that war, i got to say. So I think they're running out of patience. No question about it. Uh, so many questions, so many issues. I'm looking at the time I want to get to certain things. Um, uh, l- let's look at uh, the U.K. election of conservative Boris Johnson as prime minister. Um, and uh, quite frankly, it looks like he had a you know a big win with regard to Brexit and with regard to the conservative government that he can form. Um, your, your tweet was, quote, the U.K. election foreshadows a possible but not certain political future for the Democratic Party. It is the ghost of U.S. elections yet to come. Sorry, Christmas, Carol, if we nominate someone too extreme for the electorate. Uh, very good tweet. Very good point. Could you uh, just expand on that a bit? Sure. I mean, it's really pretty simple, right? Because they have this Brexit thing going on over there, as everyone knows, which, in my opinion, was a bad idea. And Boris Johnson is the poster child for Brexit. I mean, he wants Brexit right away. He doesn't care about the consequences. He's in favor of this, quote, hard Brexit. What's interesting is people in the United Kingdom, by a margin of 9%, don't want Brexit. They want to remain in the European Union. So you have a country where, by a 9% margin, They want to stay in the European Union. Boris Johnson wants to get out, and Corbyn wanted to stay. So you would think against that backdrop, Corbyn would have a pretty good election. But he got got crushed. Why did he get crushed? Because if you would listen to what he has been talking about, he's basically been talking about the government taking over everything in the private economy of, of the United Kingdom. And I think Voters rejected that. You combine that with things that he has said and historically associated with uh, regarding anti-Semitism, and you basically got a situation where even though the most important kind of issue in the United Kingdom most voters were with him on, they rejected him at the ballot box. And that's been my point, which is if we put someone as our nominee who wants to basically throw out the entire economic model of the United States of America— it doesn't matter that they don't like Donald Trump. They're not going to vote for that. Very true. When you look at Boris, though, I mean, isn't he, even though, you know, people say how historical this is, it's also historical in the sense he's going to be ruling over the smallest United Kingdom because you don't have Wales, you don't have Northern Ireland. I mean, it isn't the full UK uh, that Margaret Thatcher uh, was ruling over or was prime minister over uh, that Boris is. Yeah, I mean, listen, Boris Johnson is a very controversial uh, figure, and I, I, I don't actually – I mean, I, I like that even though he's a conservative, he ran on things like trying to address climate change and um, trying to support the national health system. So unlike a lot of conservatives in, in our country who have become climate deniers and want to gut all government programs, 
he didn't he doesn't stand for that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean the United Kingdom is in a tough spot. I mean they're a terrific ally, and we have an amazing relationship with them, and it is a very special relationship. But you know this Brexit thing has taken the toll on their country. Um, I want I want to touch upon um, also a couple of things. Michael Bloomberg entered the race. Uh, Tom Steyer has less than one percent support. How do you feel about billionaires jumping in? Um, and even Andrew Yang, some uh, could say, you know, uh, is a you know a, a part of that. People that you know have a lot of money because it, it, seeing the voters I talk to, they kind of resent people buying their way into this game. Yeah, I mean, I think look at and, and um, I've been criticized for this as well because I've largely self-funded most of my campaign. Um, you know, I had a successful business track record before I ran for Congress, and that gave me flexibility. As had Tom Steyer. Uh, to a greater degree than me, and then as has Michael Bloomberg to a much greater degree than anyone. So, I mean, I, I, there's three people running for president right now who were successful in business before uh, getting involved in public service, Michael Bloomberg, Tom Starr, and myself. And, um, you know, I was the only CEO of a public company serving in Congress. Tom ran a big, successful hedge fund. And Michael Bloomberg obviously started a, an extraordinarily successful financial information company. Um, and, and I'll say Tom Steyer and I are actually good friends. We were in business together for many years. Um, I don't have any issue with it. Look, at I think myself, Tom, Mr. Bloomberg, are obviously trying to, to do something with the blessings we've had to make a difference in the world. I think people get, you know, way too focused on these things, and I don't think most voters care. I think a lot of politicians get very upset about it. Uh, because, you know, they they uh, are upset that other people have more flexibility to fund their campaigns than they do. But I think if you go to your average voter, I don't think they care. I mean, Mr. Bloomberg, who just entered the race, has been a, not only a successful business person, but he was a very successful mayor, and he's been an extraordinary philanthropist. Um, so, you know, I think anyone who wants to run for president should, you know, uh, and... Uh, I think the same is true for Tom Steyer and, you know, for me for that matter. Uh, I really t- appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you, John. Uh, Mr. John Delaney, former congressman, current Democratic presidential candidate. Check out his website, johndelaney.com, J-O-H-N-D-E-L-A-N-E-Y. And on Twitter, follow him there at John Delaney.